Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for Rhythms, a series exploring the essence of Christian life, asking, who am I becoming? It's about personal formation, shaping our lives with Christian values, moving beyond the mere thoughts about God to practical habits and disciplines that mirror Jesus. These are our Rhythms. We pray this message is a blessing. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, New Life Cool and Gatter. What a pleasure it is to be here uh, on the second week of church in 2024. If you've made it, well done. If this is your first time, happy new year from all of us at New Life. We're so glad uh, that you've come back for another year of doing church together. Um, and I'm going to invite us to jump straight in today. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 1. And whilst you flick there in your Bibles, if you haven't met me yet, uh, my name is David Skembry, and I get the absolute pleasure of being one of the pastors here at New Life. And today, uh, I get the joy of continuing our annual Rhythms series. See, each year, New Life launches the year believing that the primary focus we should have year in and year out shouldn't so much be the the goals we're setting or things we're achieving or New Year's resolutions. Rather, the primary focus of, the, of what we should be thinking about is the kind of people that we're becoming. And so each year we start our year with this series called Rhythms where we have a conversation about the habits and the practices we, invi- we find ourselves engaging in regularly. Perhaps it's something as small as each morning the first thing you do is you reach over and you grab your phone and you look at it. Any people guilty of that? No, I'm kidding, don't put your hands up. But um, maybe it's something much bigger, like you're an overworker and you don't know how to take a rest or how to quiet your mind, or some of the other habits. We believe that these rhythms, the habits and the practices that we do, they form and they shape more than just how we spend our time, but they make a mold that go on to shape the very people we're becoming. As a Christian thought leader and philosopher, his name is Cornelius Plantinga, and he explains it this way. He says, when you sow a thought, you'll reap a deed. When you sow a deed, you're gonna reap other deeds. When you sow some deeds, you reap a habit. When you sow some habits, you'll reap a character. When you sow a character, you'll reap two more thoughts. And these new thoughts, he goes on to say, will go on to repeat this process until at last our thoughts have managed to shape our entire lives. And this is based on a scriptural principle that's found the whole way through the Bible called sowing and reaping. In Galatians 6, 7, Paul writes it this way. He says, do not be deceived. And so today, believing the Bible is still relevant for us, we call out as a church, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Or a woman reaps what she sows. Friends, the rhythms we live by, the thoughts, deeds, and habits we sow into our lives, they they are shaping the kind of people we're becoming. And so friends, what rhythms do you live by? What are the rhythms you live by? And in what ways can we as a community, can we as a church actually take hold of the rhythms of our life that we might shape our lives to, to, to actually become more people, more like Jesus? 
Last week, uh, Beck launched this series with a rhythm called meditation. And meditation is, is little more than simply the thing we find our brains continuously reflecting on. And she invited us as a community to institute this rhythm of meditation where we resist the urge to meditate on the things of this world, the troubles, the concerns, the anxieties, and the fears of this world. But in its place, we choose to meditate on the words of God, the character of God, and the hope of God given to us. And today, I get the joy of launching us into a conversation about a rather unusual rhythm, a rhythm called secrecy. We'll find out more in a moment. How about we dive into the scriptures and see what the Bible says about this rhythm? Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And jumping forward to verse 16, it says, and when you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Would you join with me in prayer? Spirit of God, would you come? Not as though you're joining us for the first time this morning, but would you actually bring us to an awareness that you've already come, that you are present right now, that you, Lord, have a purpose and a plan to do something significant this morning, that God, it is your kindness and your mercy that has gathered us as a community together, and it is your goodness and your mercy which you reveal as we look at your word. And so I just pray this, Lord. May we learn what it is to live rhythms of secrecy, to overcome that need to be seen by others, God. Might we become a people, Holy Spirit, that are freed, freed from slavery to other people's opinions. We love you, Jesus. We praise you that you're present. And in your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So it starts, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Now, why on earth would any one of us want to be seen doing good by someone, right? Why would we, anyone in this room, care what other people think of us? Surely no one in this room ever finds himself caring what other people thinks of them, right? Yeah, chuckle. Because when we take off our Christian hats, when we, when we stop pretending we're perfect, man, when I do that, I'm the first person to stick my hand up and say, I, I wrestle with this. This is a really real subject for me. It's, it's really raw to my soul. I wrestle with a fear of what other people think of me. 
A few years ago, uh, I was leading actually a small group, and we were talking about prayer. And one of the guys in the small group, he points out a verse in the Bible where Paul says, hey, pray unceasingly, pray uh, at all times. And and so that conversation kind of led people to be like, you know, well, I pray quite often. I pray here, and I pray here, and I pray then, and, you know, all of these things. And, And then someone pivots it and says, yeah, but where don't you pray? And over the next few minutes, the conversation kind of took shape and, and, and a number of people echoed the same sentiment. We struggle to pray publicly. We struggle to pray in public places. And this one guy, I remember him put his hand up and he's super cool and he just decided to be vulnerable in the moment. And he said, you know, I, I'm, I try not to be a bad Christian and I hope this doesn't mean I'm a bad Christian. You know, but if I'm really honest, every time I go to pray when I'm in a public place, I just feel this anxiety fill me. And I start thinking, what are these people thinking about me? You, you, you know, what if I misrepresent God? What if I say something wrong in my prayer? You know, what if I put one of these listeners from public off the gospel by my prayer? And he said, I just feel so overwhelmed. I shut down and I just can't speak. And you know, every, I heard this kind of like, residual murmuring of, yeah, we get some of that. That actually makes a lot of sense. We ourselves have felt that. And this one guy in the room, he was like a fresh Christian, all the energy of a fresh Christian, all the excitement uh, of that kind of person. He pipes up and goes, that's weird. I pray all the time. And we're like, oh, okay. (laughs) Probably not a loving way to respond. But tell me about that. And he's like, yeah, I pray all the time. I even pray when I'm driving, like that was a significant place. And so engaging him, clearly thinking that was quite a significant place to pray, we went, tell us what that looks like. And he said, well, sometimes when I'm listening to a worship song and I'm chatting to Jesus, I just get so excited. I take my hands off the steering wheel and I just lift them high and I praise. And we were like... (laughs) Oh, brother, could this get worse? And he goes on and says, and you know, sometimes I even try to risk how long I can close my eyes for whilst I'm praying on the motorway driving 110. And the room was kind of silent. And he he caught the cue that maybe that wasn't a helpful practice. And he goes really, really sincerely, oh, shouldn't I do that? And and we delicately said, look, when you're driving, other people's lives are in your hands. Maybe we should be more careful. You know, God sees the heart. Anyway, and his reply was, well, guys, how do you all pray in the car when you're driving? And one guy goes, oh, well, with my eyes open and my hands on my steering wheel, that's how I pray. Um, But I was like, actually, it's a really good question. Because for me, I find praying in my car can sometimes be the moment I shut down most, especially back when my car didn't have window tints. Because when you're praying in public, normally someone else is with you. And so it's kind of like, I I worked in hospitality. It's not that unusual to see people praying before they eat or around their food, right? But when you're driving and you're on your own and you're having a really passionate conversation with God and there's no one else in the car, people will either think you're on the phone or you're crazy. And so I pray to about the rhythm of the cars beside me, you know, if I'm just driving and no one else is matching my speeds, I will be praying my soul off. But when I get to a red light and a car pulls up next to me, even though I haven't looked at them, my soul is convinced the driver is doing this, just staring at me, waiting for something to judge. And I fully stop praying and I just feel my soul shut down and I just stop praying and I'm like, God, I'm so sorry. Let's go to an advertisement break and we'll be right back when it goes green. And, you know, and then I continue my prayer and I zoom off. It's wild how we let what other people think shape the way we live out our Christian life. I wonder, does anyone in this room ever live out their Christian life in a way that's molded by what we fear other people might be thinking about what we're doing? You know, in that scripture we read before, uh, back many years ago, 
People were so, so, so concerned about what the people around them were thinking, they actually went and prayed out loud and proud and publicly so people would hear and think they're a good person. Today, we, so many of us are so concerned with what people think of us. The same problem. But the culture's changed, and so instead of praying out loud, we don't pray at all because we don't want to look silly or we don't want to be judged. It's an issue that has plagued humanity for as long as humanity has had a history to write down. And my hope for today is that we could wage war on this brokenness, that we could actually look to the words of Jesus and see that Jesus was concerned about this and he actually cared enough to arm us and equip us to fight for victory. That we as a people might find freedom from the fear of other people's opinions and might live lives more concerned with the kingdom of God than with the kingdom of the world. And all of this begins, and all of Jesus' way of winning this begins in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, with a command and an introduction. And he says this, be careful. Friends, be careful. Not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is where the rhythm of secrecy begins that we would be a people who are careful, that we would see how damaging and destructive our insecurities and our burning needs for affirmation really is, that we would begin to wage war on that burning need for approval, that we would refuse to liberally misuse good works for self-gain, but rather we'd entrust the things we need to gain to a God who cares enough about us to give them to us. See, the rhythm of secrecy is first and foremost about healing. So maybe you go, well, quit stalling, David. Describe, give me the details. What is this rhythm called secrecy? How do we do it? Well, to answer that, I'm going to give you a bit of context around how this scripture is shaped. Because what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 6 isn't exclusive to Matthew chapter 6. It's actually part of a larger narrative called uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very uncreative title for a sermon Jesus gave on the side of a mountain. And so Jesus comes onto the side of of a mountain and he brings a teaching starting in chapter 5 that is his most most exhaustive introduction to this strange entity called the kingdom of God. And he's like, I want people in this world, the people who are listening to me both today and through scriptures 2,000 years from now in Australia, to know more about what the kingdom of God is. And this is how we learn about it. And this really, really matters. Because when we understand that Jesus is trying to teach us about his kingdom, and right embedded in the middle, he talks about our need for affirmation, we recognize that whatever his kingdom is about, the need for affirmation is anti it. And we know as readers of the scriptures that the kingdom of God is a throwback. It's a throwback to a time, uh, to a way we were designed to live and enjoy, enjoy life with God. In other words, the kingdom of God is about healing. It's about wholeness. It's about becoming the kind of people God designed us to be. And therefore, it's an undoing of all the brokenness that's entrenched in our worlds, but also in our hearts. So you ask, well, how does being a little bit sneaky, how does being just a tad secretive in any way help us become more whole? Well, it's not actually a rhythm of keeping uh, any old secret. It's specific. It's, It's a rhythm practiced exclusively when we do good things. And you might ask, but like, if we're doing good things, why does this even matter? Like, surely Jesus, when he's bringing his beautiful sermon on the kingdom of God, he had more important fish to fry than than how we do good things. Like, you know, what about slavery, child labor, murder, lust? You know, the big things. And Jesus couldn't agree more. 
And so he begins in chapter five this sermon by actually introducing the nature of the kingdom of God. And he does that by describing it uh, to the people listening and to us today, that the kingdom of God is something different. It has a different way of thinking, a different way of valuing people. It is a light shining brightly into our world that undoes the old way, the broken and damaging order of things. And he goes from there and then begins to address those deep and destructive sins we find. Like human beings seem to keep finding other human beings always doing. And it's after he addresses the big sins that he arrives here in chapter six and points out that brokenness is not in fact exclusive to to bad things and bad thought, but actually brokenness all of us experience even impacts and shapes the way we do good things. That's how entrenched it is into our natures. And it's through these two points that we begin to discover something simple about the kingdom of God. Friends, I wonder if you know it today. The kingdom of God. God's plan for humanity. It's a plan that pivots not on what we do, but more deeply and more privately on the condition of our souls. This is the concern of God. It's not only that we shouldn't murder, that's a given. But we should be careful not to allow our inner person, our souls, to privately enjoy the ideals of a person not existing. It's not only that we shouldn't commit adultery, but we should be careful uh, to resist our souls and privately entertaining immoral sexual desires. It's not only that we should obviously do good things, but also that we should be careful the attitude in which our souls approach and do these good things for self-gain or simply for more good to exist. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that even resistant doing sins and resisting inwardly being sinful is not enough. Our inner brokenness manifests even in our good deeds and our right acts. And it's this inner brokenness that God's kingdom, his influence expanding into our world is looking to heal us from. And so Jesus speaking into this, he brings three examples and we read them just before. And these examples are generosity, which is an image of all the different ways we can treat and love one another, do good to one another and to our world. The, the, the second one then is, is prayer. And prayer is an image of the way we do intimacy between ourselves and God, another type of goodness, righteousness we can live in. And then the third is fasting. And fasting is an image of holiness, of the way we express our Christianity in the unique priestly call Christians have into our world. And so in other words, what Jesus does is he covers the whole plethora of good things we could do and says, I don't care what good thing you're thinking of, all of it can be corrupted by sin. And the example for sin he gives is the universal need for affirmation. The example he gives for how even good works can be corrupted by sin is an example that every single person in this room can relate to. A universal hunger and pursuit, a drive and a fear shaped by the opinions and the need for approval of the people around us. And it's important to note that what he's providing here are are actually just examples, they're not rules. And I wanna say that because someone once came up to me, um, they found out I was fasting and they said to me, well, it doesn't count anymore, does it? (laughs) 
And I was like, oh man, I think you've misunderstood. But it's important that we, we understand that if it was a rule, that would mean that every time we pray and someone's seen us, um, then our prayers remain unsent. Or every time we're generous and someone catches us, our generosity might, would have been better unspent, right? And that's not what he's saying here. If someone finds out you're fasting, your fast is still a beautiful thing. But he's giving examples of how good, good things in our world are corrupted by the brokenness in our souls, and the illustration, one of the most universal experiences every human has, is this need, this slavery we have to gaining the gratification of the people around us. But what Jesus does in and through these examples isn't, stopping, isn't just stopping by saying there's a problem, but in and through these examples, he begins to unveil a means, a way, a path for healing. In Matthew 23, verses 25 to 26, he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. In other words, there were all of these people who were so concerned with how they were seen acting rightly, and they said, you can't fault me. No one in this world can fault me, because look how much good... Would I do? And Jesus said, you have scrubbed, clean the outside of the bowl, but your soul is just as broken and as wretched and pitiable. And we as a people need to realize that whilst God wants good works, good works overflow from good hearts. And so his primary concern isn't that we would get really good at looking good, but actually we would get really good at being healthy and made in the image of Jesus. And so we come before God and we say, well, Jesus, how do we clean the inside of our hearts? I hear you, I get it. You spend a lot of time addressing the stuff going on inside our hearts, but how do we experience it? And you know, personally, this isn't just a sermon that I got to write from a position at the top of the mountain where I get to say, guys, I've nailed this, come join me, right? This is a position of weakness. I preach this sermon. I I almost feel like the hypocrite, which is why I come before you so honestly. This is my struggle, my burden. I am terrified by the opinions of other people. I live my life treading on eggshells, scared to death that someone might judge me or mock me, that someone might judge me look down at me or laugh at me. I'm terrified of it. Even yesterday, it's a stupid example, but even yesterday, me and Ella, we, we bought for ourselves for Christmas a book called The Adventure Book. And if you, know, if you don't know what it is, essentially um, each page has a bunch of scratches on it, and behind those scratches there are secret dates. But once you scratch them off, you have to do them. And I thought, adventure sounds fun, why not? And so we scratched the first one, picking at random, and, and it was a challenge where you had to go into a public place, like uh, buy a collection of chalks and, and, and outline your partner on the concrete, which might I add is surely vandalism, but anyway, do that and then sit there and be soppy and write a bunch of lovely kind things about them uh, in their human outline and draw pictures and stuff. And as you can imagine, I was like, oh, this is an adventure? Really? The, the standards have dropped. And I was like, okay, I have to be energetic and excited, happy wife, happy life. So I said, yes, I'm so pumped. But inwardly, something began to grate inside me. I don't know what it was. I started getting really irritable. And before we went and did this, we went to the beach, we were lying on the beach, and I 
fully forgot about it because it was such a lovely day. And I was like, why was I so irritable before? Why was I feeling so grumpy? I don't remember. And just in that moment, Ella leant over and goes, oh, before we leave, we have to go to Woolworths and buy some chalks. And immediately, all of the irritability came back. And I was like, oh, I do not want to do this. People are going to walk past whilst I'm drawing your outline on the floor and they are going to judge me so as a weirdo. Anyway, the point is, I did it and actually no one cared at all, surprisingly, shock horror. But my soul is burdened by a fear that I might not be liked. It's, it's not just something that I, 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 I can say, well, this is something I feel, but I'll ignore it. It's things, it impacts me in ways I'm not even aware of. It impacts me in ways I only discover in the moments they happen. This is an insidious and destructive thing. And, and I wonder in the room whether there are some people who can relate to it. Maybe you don't care about writing with chalk on the ground because it really doesn't matter that much, but perhaps you spend your life trying to get approval from a father figure. Maybe you suffer greatly with a need to people please. The word no is almost impossible for your soul to say. Maybe that career or that look, that fashion, those material goods, the way you mock, scoff or laugh at others, it all revolves around building the kind of self-image that makes people like you or love you, adore you or chase you, pop you on a pedestal and all the while you live desperately just waiting for this affection to finally fill and heal that desperate emptiness within you. You know, there are so many ways that our fear of people can manifest. Maybe it's the reason you go quiet or maybe it's the reason you're always so loud. Maybe it's why you choose to be so kind to everyone, or maybe it's the reason you find yourself being snarky or elitist. It shapes our lives in so many ways, manifesting differently from person to person, whether it was leading us to pray publicly to gain approval, or whether it's the reason we don't pray publicly at all. But that need for other people's approval, it's a universal and common shared experience. So no wonder Jesus makes it a priority to bring healing to us as he brings his kingdom from it. So how do we clean the inside of our bowls? How do we scrub such a deeply embedded brokenness? When Jesus introduced these three examples, as I said before, he crafted in them a framework. I don't know if you noticed when we read them, but each of those three stories sound similar. There were similar repetitive points, similar repetitive journeys that each of the examples went in. And it can be broken into three distinct parts. And these three distinct parts offer us a journey by which we might begin to wage war on this brokenness in our soul and actually find a freedom that can last after a period of time of waging war. These are the three points. The first causes us to know our hearts. The second causes us to resist our wounds. And the third causes us to trust our God. And collectively, these are the three steps that shape the rhythm called secrecy, a rhythm designed to bring healing and restoration to wounded souls. So what does it mean to know our hearts? The first one. In each of the examples Jesus gives, he actually takes a moment to start by acknowledging the motive of the person that's doing the good thing. It starts in each and every time by saying that their primary concern for doing a good thing, it it wasn't that a good thing might happen, it wasn't that a person might be blessed, or it wasn't because holiness was owed. Their primary concern for doing a good thing was that other people might see them or honor them for doing it. 
And this matters because it means that their first motive wasn't uh, to actually see a beautiful reality abound on the earth. Their first motive was that they might gain something, that there might be selfishness. And in that selfishness, there might be a building up of self. What they wanted was more. They weren't looking to give. They were looking to take. And I think, I know for myself, and I'm sure for most of us in this room, there are moments where we know we've done a good thing with the intention to be seen doing a good thing by someone, right? Like most people in the room could relate. But then perhaps you go, but quite often that's not the primary. It's not the first motive in our souls. You know, quite often I'll do a nice thing because there's a need and I'm burnt and I just want to do that thing for them. But then immediately after, our thoughts begin to say, in moments and in opportunities, you should tell them. Have you considered mentioning to them how good you are? Have you considered telling that person how you gave money that time? Ooh, have you mentioned how hard your fast has been these last few weeks? You know, and, and our souls whisper, drive and encouraging us to begin to make known our good deeds and our good works. And that shows us that maybe even if it's not our primary motivation, we have a motivation in our soul for self-gain, even through good things. And what that highlights to us is even if it's just A and not the, there is still some aspect and element of the brokenness of people pleasing deeply embedded in our souls. And every one of us needs to find healing from that because as Jesus goes on to say in this chapter, a human being cannot serve two masters and he uses money, but perhaps we should use people. You cannot serve God and serve other human beings you will come to love the one or, and despise the other. And, and this is true for every one of us. And so I wonder, when was the last time you paused to consider why it is that you do the good things that you do? Why do you do the good things you do? Why do you do anything you do? Have you ever just paused to reflect? Jesus starts his example here because what drives us reveals what's thriving in us. What's driving us reveals what's thriving in us. So pause and reflect. The last time you did something good or the last time you did anything, was there a great fear or a need? Was it that worldly, worldly things would abound? Well, then within us, there is a worldly, fleshly, sinful nature abounding and driving and thriving within us. Or was it simply that the kingdom of God might be glorified, that his goodness might be known and there might be more goodness and healing and wholeness in the world? Beautiful. That means also within you, thriving is the kingdom of God. And the problem we all have is we wish it could just be linear. You know, once you finally cross that point of worrying what other people think, boom, you're free. But that's not the real nature. The real nature is one day, I couldn't give a hoot what anybody else thought. I did that thing because the Spirit of God convicted me and I felt a burden inside of me and I wanted to bless them. And other days, uh, like even perhaps the next day or that afternoon, perhaps I'm driven to do a good thing and there's some part of me that's looking forward to enjoying the reward that comes with it that people might see and might know. So how do we know our hearts? How do we pause and reflect and take stock of the nature and the culture of our hearts? And my honest take on it is this. On the way home today, or tomorrow morning, make a decision in your hearts right now. Do something good for someone. I mean, something costly good, something expensive good, something truly good, a blessing to a human being. Make a decision, a a, a resolved decision in your souls right now to do a good thing. And then just see how you feel afterwards. Pay attention to your impulses, the cries of your soul. Perhaps you will uh, straight afterwards feel a quiet satisfaction at goodness being done. Or perhaps this day you will feel that loud and impulsive force driving you to loudly proclaim to as many people as you can how wonderful you are. 
Did you see how much I just gave to that person? Hoo-wee, I'm a generous soul. It'll change from day to day. And maybe it's not as explicit as that, but it will. And we need to keep stock of the condition of our soul. And in those days, perhaps, where you see the condition of the soul, that this need for approval is, is bashing, it's hurting, it's turbulent in us, what do we do? A second point, resist our wounds. Resist our wounds. It's an invitation, invitation by Jesus. And we have to ask, well, what does it mean to resist these wounds? Jesus invites his, his hearers to not only sit by passively and watch this thing happen. He doesn't even say white knuckle and hope for the best that we might wrangle the wrongness of our soul. He actually calls us to actively wage war on it. Not just in the moments where it happens, but to create moments where we might defeat these parts of us. He says this, if you can be kind or generous without being spotted, go out of your way and do it. Go and be kind and don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Like, be totally quiet about it. Maybe if you can find time to be intimate with Jesus, I'm gonna challenge you to make a point of finding that time in the quiet of your own home. Do it, make a point of it, and keep it between yourself and God. If you can stand up tall and not make a deal out of the moments you pursue holiness, then go home, stand up tall, and go and be holy and don't make a deal out of it. Go to war with that impulse for public approval, for self-gain through false righteousness, right? Go to war with these wounds in our soul that corrupt even our good works. See, Jesus' answer to our universal approval wound is to make a point to our hearts, to choose to do good and to actively keep it secret. Winning the battle with our need for human approval begins by doing things that is worthy of human approval and then making a point of never getting approval for it. That's his war. That is his rhythm. This is secrecy. Do something that deserves human applaud in a good way, a kingdom way, and intentionally never go out and get that applause. Doing that teaches our souls, and we do that in a rhythm. It teaches our souls that the reason we do good in this world isn't for self-gain, and it's not that I might get applause and promotion and popularity. It's not that I might gain something for myself. The reason we do good in this world is because we are first and foremost the kingdom people, and my soul will learn this even if I have to do this every single week. Maybe we could choose this year to write down a rhythm of secrecy where we choose every week something small or big, a regular act to teach our souls that our primary motivation of life isn't a fear of people or a hunger for their approval. Our primary motivation is not that that person wouldn't judge me or not that that person might approve of me. My primary reason, the primary means by which I live my life is not them, it's God. And we become free after doing this long enough to simply live in such a way that there might be more good in this world because we're in it. It's a beautiful ideal. But the problem is we actually all have a hole in our hearts, right? And we can sit here and say, I love this idea, but I don't want to wage war. I don't even believe for freedom from people's opinions. I don't even know how to begin this wrestle. Like, where do you even start? We're all driven by a demanding need to succeed in whatever unique ways that takes shape in our lives. We're all driven by the great fear of losing out or missing out, being missed out, not being enough or not having enough. Every one of us experiences some degree of this. So how do we choose secrecy in the face of these fears? How does secrecy go from being a rhythm we do once a week to a lifestyle reflection of a healed heart? And Jesus answers this with a call to trust him, to trust our God. So first, 
we come to see there's brokenness, you shouldn't be surprised. We all have it. Second, we follow the words of Jesus and we wage war on that brokenness. But Jesus does something, and he does it all throughout the Bible. Whenever he introduces us to a rhythm of healing, he never leaves us in that rhythm on its own. He never says, all right, off you go, pal. See how good you can get it. He knows our hearts are broken beyond white knuckle abilities to fix it. And so what he does all throughout the Bible is he teaches us the things we can do. He teaches us the weights we can lift in life and then calls us to trust him with the weights we can't lift. He calls us to trust him with the things we can't do. And if you read these scriptures, if you read these three examples again, a word just comes up over and over and over again in all of the examples. And this word is reward. I don't know if you picked it. And God actually says that those acting selfishly, they can only expect a limited, broken, warped, worldly reward and nothing actually more. But those acting in a kingdom way, they experience eternal rewards. Rewards from a father who busts to show his care for us. He says to those um, who are willing to wrestle with their wounded, wounded need for approval, he says this, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that our Father wants to and desires to reward you? In Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's around 6, 7, or 8, he actually points this out really well, and he describes the reason for our salvation. Why did he go and suffer and sacrifice so much that we might be saved? And in this verse, he says one of the chief motivators God had for saving us was that he might make known or reveal a lavish his kindness upon us for generations to come. In other words, that his grace and his kindness might be revealed to us. He he saved us so that he could be kind to us. He saved us so that he could love us. He's not convincing us to do a good thing so that we, we might be found lacking. He's welcoming us to trust him. He's welcoming us to trust him. He's inviting us to know his goodness, to know that he returns trust with blessing. And once we come to believe that we're truly safe in the hands of God, we find it far, far, far easier to release our need to find refuge in the fickle opinions of the people that surround us. Friends, do you know your God is a God who brings rewards? In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse six, it says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he is and then believe that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly Seek him. In other words, it takes faith to believe that our God wants to reward us, and he knows that, but it also pleases God when we choose to believe in him as a God who does reward us. And this whole section in Matthew chapter six, it's actually concluded at the end of the chapter with a promise around the stuff we need in life. He says, regarding this stuff in Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the things we need will be given to us as well. So what is the rhythm of secrecy? How do we go to war with the unhealthy dependencies we have on human affirmation? Friends, and before I even say this, do you believe you can? Do you see the need? Does your soul reflect the genuine brokenness? Can you come to terms with the fact that in truth, every one of us are wrestling with something God wants to heal? First, we know our hearts. We get to know our hearts. We choose to be aware of how our fear of public opinion and our need for human approval is shaping our actions and our faith. And, and then number two, we resist our wounds. 
We choose to actively wage war on our need for approval by doing good things worthy of approval and then never giving another soul the chance to approve of us. And then step three, we trust God. We choose to believe our God is our strength. We choose to believe our God is our rock and our cornerstone. We choose to believe that he is our refuge, that he alone can make us stand and he alone will, that we don't need the approval of people to thrive in life, no matter the lies that our soul tells us. Put first the kingdom of God and we trust he knows the rest. We trust him with the rest. And as we see, we can trust him we begin to learn that we can fully give our lives to God and not spend our whole lives scared or desperate for mere human approval. You see, our God in this, this idea of rewards, it wasn't only a human reward that he, he died to bring. It wasn't only a, a reward within this life that he wanted to make known. It wasn't stuff or, or things that was his primary reward, but he actually went ahead. Jesus, after this sermon, And he did a bunch more loving things for a bunch of people. And after a short period of time, he was betrayed. Someone betrayed him. And for every one of us in this room, Christian and non-Christian, hear me, this was for you. Jesus was betrayed, beaten, mocked, wounded. He had a nail placed in each of his hands, slamming him to a tree. He was lifted upon that cross and he died of suffocation alone, being mocked by the people around him, abandoned, betrayed, and wounded. And there in the silence of death, he did something more devastating than we know how to imagine. He paid the deeper cost, the great cost. Every time I've rejected him, every time I've been unjust, every time I've rejected uh, his ways or his love or his kindness, every time I've treated someone else badly, every single thing I've ever done worthy, every single thing worthy of punishment, of separation from him. He paid that on the cross. You know, as Christians, as people who believe in the cross, that's all it means, people who believe in the cross as our salvation, today we get to know deep in our souls that we are forgiven, that we are wanted, that we are loved, that our God, in spite of our failures, has welcomed us home and is rewarding us in part today, but in a day to come entirely more. He alone can make us stand. He alone is our rock and our cornerstone in Him alone. Do we have hope and confidence? Let's forget the need for public and and human approval. This is not how we live. It's just a lie we're believing. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, I just thank you so much that you care enough about us. You care enough about me and every person in this room to actually intervene in the brokennesses we're struggling with, God, that you actually care enough to come to this earth and bring a way by which we might find uh, freedom and rest for our souls, that we might find the burden we've been weighed down by no longer holds us, God. I just just come before you in, in, in praise. Lord, thank you that you care so much. Thank you that you care enough to bring freedom, to guide us the right way. And maybe in this room, you didn't know how Jesus was so loving and cared so much, not only about some strange, ethereal, eternal paradise, but he actually cares about us today, in this day, in this room, in this moment. He cares about the woundedness in our souls, and he wishes to see freedom and healing intervene. He wishes to see you more whole. And so with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, just out of respect, really, 
Christians in the room lifting this up and praying to God. I just invite you, if you're here and you're, and you're making a decision today to follow Jesus for the first time, you want to start a conversation about what it means to be a friend of Jesus for the first time, I just want to invite you to raise your hand high in the air now and just let us know that with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, that this is a Jesus you want to be friends with. Thank you. Come on. Lord, I thank you that you're at work in this room. That for those of us who are coming to know you for the first time or coming back to you, you're stirring and welcoming by the revelation of how wonderful you are. That you, God, are at work and doing a beautiful thing. And for those of us in the room who are Christians and just wrestle with trusting your way and finding freedom from human approval, God, I praise you that you are doing a healing work and we can believe that and we can begin to see a vision in our life of a day to come where we no longer live our lives for other people, but we live our lives for you. Lord, heal us. Thank you that we can trust you and you've got us. We adore you, God. And in Jesus' perfect name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.